Amen. Our sermon text this morning is taken from Acts chapter 13. I'm beginning in Acts 13 at verse 44, and I'm going to read into chapter 14 uh, all the way through verse 7. These are the words of the living God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coasts. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. Let's pray together. O Lord, we've gathered here this morning before the glory of your word. This is the glory that created the heavens and the earth in the beginning and which is now recreating the whole world through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask you for that glory to rest upon us now by the power of your Spirit. Father, we pray that it would rest upon us and then go with us from this place, and so provoke many to join us, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. God's way of conquest is not what we would have thought up. God's way of conquest is not what we would have thought up. This is, this is true really in a number of ways. Um, beginning with just the fact that um, Jesus says, all right, here's the plan for filling the world with my grace. Here's the plan for filling this whole world um, uh, with Uh, my kindness and blessing. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell everybody that I was crucified and rose from the dead, and when they love that, put some water on their head, and then gather together together every week, um, have a bite of bread and a sip of wine, and celebrate it. One, two, three, break. So that's the plan. So first of all, that's just not how any one of us would have come up with the plan, but that's the plan. That's not, um, that's not what we would have thought of as the conquest, but that is, um, that's the command, that's the conquest. But it's, it's, even, it's even worse than that, or better, depending on how you think about it. 
Um, it begins there, that's the plan. But in addition to that, one of his central plays is provoking people to jealousy through his extravagant blessings. So in addition to that, basically the plan is, so you're going to go around, you're going to tell people that Jesus died for sinners, rose from the dead to make them right with me. When they respond to that and they say, yeah, we, want, we, want to, we, we believe that, put water on their head, um, gather together once a week, share bread and wine, and celebrate that. And as you do that, God is going to pour out his extravagant blessings on you in such a way that everyone around you is going to notice and be jealous. That's the plan. All right, one, two, three, break. A central part of God's plan is to provoke people, the world, to jealousy through his extravagant blessings. Now, sometimes this provocation turns angry and violent. Some people see that blessing and hate it. Some people see that blessing and are angry about it and stir up uh, all kinds of trouble. But ultimately, the plan is to provoke the ends of the earth to be saved. The plan is for God's blessing to so rest upon his people that everyone in the world wants it. That's the plan. The plan is for God's blessing to so rest upon his people that everyone wants it. Where did you get that? How did you get that? How did you get that kind of marriage? How did, how did you put that back together? How come your kids like you so much? How come it's so happy in your home? How come your, bless, your, your business is so blessed? How come, how, how come you're doing so well? How, but you've had all this trouble. You've had all these difficulties. How come it's going so well? And you, and you say, it's God. It's God. He gives like this. He gives abundantly. Do you want to meet him? He, can, he gives like this. Do you want to meet him? So this is how the gospel conquers. The gospel conquers by provocation. The gospel conquers by provoking the ends of the earth. This is what conquest looks like. So let's walk through this text together. There's two episodes here back to back, and they both have the same thing happen in them. Uh, hopefully you notice that. The same thing happens in both of these episodes, the end of Acts 13, the beginning of Acts 14. So we're picking up at the end of Acts 13 in uh, this place called Antioch of Pisidia. Antioch of Pisidia is in the middle of modern-day Asia Minor. So if you, if you just put a dot right in the middle of Asia Minor uh, or Turkey, modern-day Turkey, that's where we're, where we're at. And, la and earlier in the chapter, Paul had preached in the synagogue, and a bunch of peop some people believed, some people weren't sure. There was a bunch of questions, and, and they said, why don't you come back next week and teach us again? So the following Sabbath, Paul preached again in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, and it says that almost the whole city came out to hear them. Uh, you know, it, it was... It, word had gotten around. That's verse 44. Filled with envy at Paul's influence, the Jews began contradicting and blaspheming the gospel. That's verse 45. Think about it. You know, there are these Jews. They've been gathering in the synagogue every Sabbath for decades, maybe longer. And suddenly this upstart guy comes in, preaches a message that the Messiah has come, and now all the city shows up. The Jews are mad. The Jews are indignant. They're, this guy shouldn't have this kind of influence. We don't know who this guy is, where he came from. Um, they're upset. They envy Paul's influence and begin contradicting and blaspheming him. So Paul quotes Isaiah 49 to them in his message, which prophesied that, that, that when the Jews, if the Jews rejected God and God's ways, that blessing would go to the Gentiles. 
in Isaiah 49, it prophesied that the gospel would go to the Gentiles if the Jews rejected it. And the Gentiles hear this and rejoice, and many of them are converted. Verse 46 to 48, which, if you think about it, only makes things worse. Right? This, this is not going to go well for you. A bunch of the Gentiles are going to believe if you reject it, and the Gentiles say, really? It's for us too? Yes, it's for you. A bunch of them believe. That just makes the Jews more indignant, more angry. So, the word of the Lord is multiplied in that whole area. It's published throughout the whole region. Word is getting out. Something, something big is happening here. Um, and so the Jews then begin stirring up persecution from prominent folks in the community uh, and ultimately expel them. We see that in verses 49 to 50. Notice it says there in 50, the Jews stirred up even the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city. So they were somehow able to get the attention of some pretty prominent citizens in the community who had a lot of sway. And, and the text even says they were devout and honorable people, but somehow the Jews were able to get them to join their side, and that ultimately ended up in them being expelled from the city. While the apostles testified against this, it says they shook off the dust of their feet against them, meaning they basically sort of formally said, you really shouldn't do this, this is really bad. Um, but we're okay we're going they testify against this but it says that all the disciples were filled with joy and the holy spirit that's verses 51 and 52 notice that just that juxtaposition they're getting kicked out of town and everybody's sort of excited they're getting they're getting kicked out of town and the disciples it says are just filled with joy wow god's doing something big so next they go to iconium and there multitudes once more gather in the synagogue in iconium they, they gather there, and once more, as Paul is asked to preach in the synagogue there, some Jews and Greeks believe. But, once again, the same thing happens. Unbelieving Jews stir up controversy and plots against Paul and Barnabas, dividing the whole city. That's verses 1 to 4. This took place, it says, over many days, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe longer, when a plot was uncovered to murder them. So there, there was a plot uncovered, and so they flee to Lystra and Derby and continue preaching there. Verses 5 to 7. So, in both episodes, the gospel goes first to the Jews gathered in the synagogues, and while some believe the majority of the Jews are filled with envy, as Gentiles believe, and they stir up controversy, trouble, and violence. We see this in both of these episodes. Remember, it was envy that caused the Jewish rulers to hand Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. It says this in Matthew 27, 18, and in Mark 15, verse 10. It was envy. Jesus was this, again, upstart preacher, rabbi, who claimed to be one with God, who claimed to be the Messiah, and had enormous crowds following him, and the Jews were envious. They were jealous of his influence and authority, and so they said, we've got to get rid of this guy, and so they handed him over to Pilate to be crucified. We also saw earlier in Acts that envy has already been driving the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem. The Jews were persecuting the Christians in Jerusalem back in chapter 5, and it says it was because of envy. So even after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven, the apostles began preaching, and the Jews want to shut it down because the apostles are preaching, and they're getting a lot of attention. They're getting a lot of people to gather around and listen to them. And they're envious. They're jealous. Well, as it turns out, 
Moses prophesied this very thing. If you look back in Deuteronomy 32, end of Deuteronomy, remember, Moses promises a bunch of blessings for Israel if they keep covenant. If they keep walking with God, keeping covenant, God's blessing is going to be on their entire life. God's blessing is going to be um, on their fields. God's blessing is going to be on their kitchen. God's blessing is going to be on their business. God's blessing is going to be on everything. But if they turn away, it's going to go very, very badly. And he says this in Deuteronomy 32, 21. And I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. So, so going back... 1,500 years previous to Moses, the plan had always been, look, my blessing is for you, Israel, but if you reject it, I'm going to give that blessing to the other nations. I'm going to give this blessing to other people in order to provoke you, in order to provoke you to jealousy, in order to provoke you to envy, in order to provoke you to anger. That's the plan, going all the way back to Deuteronomy 32. And Paul quotes that very verse in Romans 10, when he's there explaining what's going on with the Jews. So the Messiah of the Jews has come, and one of the obvious questions is, why aren't all the Jews believing in the Messiah? The Messiah has come. If he's really the Messiah, why are not all the Jews believing in him? That's one of the obvious questions. And Paul says, is explaining that in Romans 10 and 11. And he says, well, this was the plan. Look back at Deuteronomy 32. It said, if, if God's people turn away from God and reject him in a high-handed way, ultimately he's going to provoke them to jealousy by giving his blessings to other nations. He summarizes this in Romans 11, verses 11 and 12. He says that this is God's plan to save the world. Have they, the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? Now, the way, what he means by that is, so are the Jews like gone, gone? Right, they, you know, are, are the Jews gone, gone? Have they stumbled so that they're never coming back? Well, he says, he says, no, God forbid. God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles. They, they've stumbled and fallen right now for this moment. They've, they've, not, they've not accepted Jesus as the Messiah. And this is um, um, for uh, the blessing of salvation to come upon the Gentiles. In order to provoke them to jealousy... Paul says, that's Romans 11, 11, to provoke them to jealousy. And then he says this, now, if the fall of them, the Jews, be the riches of the world, if their fall means that God's blessing now goes to all the nations of the world, and the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? He says, if, if their rejection of the Messiah has turned to the blessing of the nations, how much more will the blessing be when they turn to Christ? Romans 11, 11 and 12. So, provoking to envy has always been part of God's plan of salvation. Right? This, is, this is God's plan of salvation. Even when God's blessing was on, the, on Israel and Jews in Deuteronomy, the plan was for all the nations to, to say, look how blessed that nation is. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. And all the, all the nations were to look and see Israel's blessing and say, look, look how kind their God is. Look how gracious their God is. Look how blessed that nation is. Let's go ask them how they got that. <laughs> Let's go ask them where that came from. But when the Jews turn away, when they reject that blessing and they break covenant, God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give that blessing to other nations in order to provoke the Jews. And I'm going to do the same thing. 
I'm going to provoke all the nations through the blessing that I give to those faithful nations. So provoking to envy, particularly the envy of the Jews, has always been part of the plan of salvation. Now, one of the um, unfortunate uh, distortions of the Bible that's commonly taught um, in churches is that the Old Testament was all about material blessings and the New Testament is all about spiritual blessings. Have you heard that before? The Old, Te- the old Covenant, that was all about material blessing. The New Covenant, that's, all about, that's just heaven and spiritual blessings. Don't confuse those things. Well, that's wrong. It's wrong, first of all, because in the Old Covenant, it wasn't all about material blessings. Maybe some of the material blessings were a bit more prominent, but it was always meant to be pointing to a real relationship with God, real blessing with God, heaven and eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Even over and over again, the circumcision is meant to point to circumcision of the heart. Be be right with me. I want to have a right relationship with you. See in these material blessings the blessing of your God. So it just wasn't all about material blessing. It was both. There was a material blessing involved, but it was always tied to real spiritual realities. Fast forward to the new covenant. It's not like Jesus says, hey, all of you that have given up houses and families and lands for my sake, hey, don't worry, you get heaven. That's not what Jesus said. You might get that impression sometimes. No, what Jesus actually said is, everyone who's given up houses and families and lands and businesses for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will receive back houses and families and lands with persecutions 30, 60, 100 fold in this life and in the life to come eternal life. Jesus himself says it's both. Now, we don't confuse the two. We don't think, you know, well, if I have to take eternal life or a new house, which one should I do? No, the, the pick is obvious. Go with eternal life. That's going to last a little longer, right? Um, don't, don't, don't confuse the two, right? But Jesus doesn't say that if you're really a Christian, you become really spiritual, you don't care about houses anymore. No, you, you care about the right things in the right order, but Jesus says, if you've given these things up for the kingdom, he'll give them back to you. 30, 60, 100 fold, with persecutions, with difficulties. This is not a health and wealth gospel. This is not, this is not me saying, you know, you, you know, put the tithe in and next week, you know, you're going to win the lottery. No, it's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's not like you put the tithe in and then you're just going to get that thing that you, you, know, you think you need, you want. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that God's blessings are tangible. When you walk with God, his blessings are tangible. Now, they aren't always what we wanted, right? You draw a big circle on the ground. You say, Lord, here's the X. You know, bring the helicopter, drop the blessing right there, right? And he rarely does that. I mean, occasionally he does. This is what I'd like, Lord. And Oh, look, there, there it is. But it's not to put a coin in the machine and out comes the blessing. No, what we're to do is we're to serve God honestly, without hypocrisy, um, earnestly, and then seeking his blessing, and God in his kindness blesses. It's not always what we thought it was going to be. It's not always in the way we wanted it to be, but he blesses. That's, we, um, the, the blessing of Christ is, is, is real and weighty. It's eternal. It certainly includes the forgiveness of sins. Amen. It, su- it certainly includes a right relationship with the God of the universe. Amen. It certainly includes eternal life. Yes and amen. But you can't have that kind of blessing and it not show up in your life. It will show up. Now, again, not necessarily the way we think. 
And sometimes it's in the midst of great difficulties, great persecutions. But if you have eyes to see it, it's still there. It's still there, even in the midst of difficulties. And this is God's plan for the salvation of the world. He intends for his people to be blessed spiritually and materially in order to provoke the world to find out where they got it. Where did you get that blessing? How do, you, how, do you have, how do you have that kind of joy? How do you, ha- how do you have that kind of blessing? Where did that come from? And the answer, of course, is it's all his grace. It's all his grace. Where did it come from? Part of the answer is we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, we, he, we were sinners. We were rebellious. We hated God. We were walking away from him. And God said, come home and I'll forgive all your sins and bless you. And for some reason I wanted to. And so for some reason I did. And then he just started dumping blessings on my head. It doesn't add up. It never adds up. And you say, and, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've, I've, I mean I've, I've, I've learned something. I've learned a little bit about confessing my sins. I've learned a little bit about loving my wife. I've learned a little bit about forgiving those who wrong me. I've learned a little bit about raising my children. But you look at it and it never adds up. It never adds up. You just say, it's God's grace. There, it's God's grace. And the point of it is to say, and there's more for you. So when, the, when, the, when your neighbor, when your coworker, your family members, I just don't understand how you, what, what you have. I do not understand how that works. And you say, I know, neither do I. But God is good. You want some? I, you, if you come to him, he'll give you, the same, he'll give you blessings too. He's that kind of God. So this is the plan. Provoking to envy has always been part of the plan of salvation. For them to see the blessing and for them to want that blessing too. And this is particularly the case with the Jews. Because they, they know from the Old Covenant scriptures, they know from the Old Testament that this is how God works. They've been particularly trained to, to, to be a, 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 a attuned to these kinds of blessings. And Paul says, yep, that's the plan. The plan is for them to see God's blessing on Gentiles and so want it. And so be convinced that this Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. This is also why there have been many in the Reformed tradition who have prayed and worked for the conversion of the Jews in particular. Uh, this, is a, this is actually a hallmark of the Protestant Reformed tradition. If you want to read more about that, I recommend a book called The Puritan Hope. A book called The Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. It's about this very thing. It's about a number of Reformed Baptists and Reformed Presbyterians um, during the 16 and 1700s um, who worked for, prayed for um, great revivals in England um, and America and began an explosion in missions. And a lot of it was based on a shared conviction that, um, that this, the conversion of the Jews was central to this project, the Puritan Hope. While some consider the salvation of the Jews to be merely a trickle over the course of history, so there's some who say, yeah, that's right, over time there'll be this trickle of Jews coming to the Lord, coming, to the, coming into the church, and that certainly happened. Paul seems to have something far bigger in mind in Romans 11:15. Um, so if you look there really fast uh, in Acts, uh, in Romans 11:15, it says, for if the casting away of them, the Jews, be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? That seems like a little bit more than a trickle. You know, and just hold those two things up. The Jews falling away, God's blessing going to the nations. How big is that? The reconciling of the world. And he says, what will happen, if the, what will happen when the Jews are received? 
Well, that, it's sort of, that doesn't really balance out to say, well, a few of them will come for here and there. <laughs> that, is, that isn't equal. It seems like Paul has something far bigger in mind. Now, as it happens, we come to these texts and it's talking about this. Um, there's a lot in the news about Israel right now. Many Christians believe that all of this that's happening in uh, Israel right now are signs of the end times. Maybe you've seen this in your news feed or social media feeds or whatever. Ah, oh, here we go. This is the end. Um, and uh, this is uh, an unfortunate misunderstanding of Scripture. Some Christians believe that God has continued his covenant with the Jews. Some Christians believe that God's continued his covenant with the Jews. And then, so they, they have sort of this old covenant still going. And then somewhere over here, Jesus just started something entirely new called the new covenant. And they, some Christians think that both are still going. Um, sort of running parallel to each other. And then, through a misunderstanding of a prophecy in Daniel, they believe that when the Jews rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and reestablish sacrifices, then Jesus will return. But it's a terrible misunderstanding, and it's just not right. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. You can't have two covenants still going. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. He is the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the seed of David. And this means that true Israel, true Jews, are those who trust in Jesus Christ. True Israel, true Jews, are those who trust in Jesus Christ. Paul says this in Philippians 3.3. He says, we are the circumcision who trust in Jesus Christ. We are the circumcision who trust in Jesus Christ. We are Israel. And on top of that, any return to blood sacrifices is blasphemy. Any return to blood sacrifices is blasphemy. For Israel to start sacrificing lambs and goats in Jerusalem is for them to say, Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. Jesus' sacrifice was not uh, sufficient. Finally, there's nothing uniquely holy about the land of Israel anymore. Of course, you know, we sometimes just in common parlance refer to the Holy Land, and that's fine. You don't need to tackle your brother over that and co confront him. Um, but it, it, it can, we can mean that in the sense just historically, that's where God did all that um, glorious work. But Israel, modern-day Israel, is no more holy than Idaho today. And what we mean by that is actually Idaho is, is just as holy as Israel was. Why? Because everywhere that God's people gather, the Holy Spirit is there in their midst, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies the land. In fact, Jesus said, before he ascended into heaven, all authority in heaven and earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations. All the nations have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. All the nations are therefore holy. All the nations belong to Jesus and all are sanctified by his blood and by his spirit. Nevertheless, to the extent that a nation and people continue to study the Old Testament, as Jews still do, many Jews still gather in synagogues every Saturday, and they hear readings from the Old Testament. To the extent that a nation or people continue to study the Old Testament with veils over their hearts, which is what Paul says is happening in 2 Corinthians 3. He says they hear the word, but there's a veil over their heart. It's not coming all the way through. They don't understand it. Nevertheless, to the extent that you have that, you have a people with greater light. You do have a people with greater light. Bits and pieces of the light of the Old Testament shines through. 
And that means that they have more obligation to believe in Jesus. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament's about the coming Messiah. They have a greater obligation to believe. You often will also have both the blessings and the curses that come with that light and with the rejection of it. Right? You, can, you have Jews, and they hear readings, and they can grab bits and pieces of it, maybe particular principles from Proverbs about business or about parenting or about marriage or whatever, and they apply those things. That is greater light, and they can have greater blessing because of it. But at the same time, you can also have greater curses because of the rejection of it. If you want a category for this, we could call it the covenant with Hagar. Right? So you say, well, what am I supposed to, where, where do I put the Jews? Where do I put them? Well, Paul says in Galatians 4, it's the covenant with Hagar. Right? It's, it's, um, this is the slave woman, the bond woman, who was cast out. Paul says that's where these Jews who are rejecting the Messiah, that's where they're headed. They're the covenant with Hagar. This is why, though, all of this is why, I believe, Jewish people have often been highly functioning people in society for good and for ill. This has been historically true. It's, it's just really actually kind of remarkable. Just do a historical study and you'll see this. The Jews have been highly functioning people in society for good and for ill, and it is why they have been so often so vehemently hated. They've been vehemently hated because frequently they do better, and it's because they have this light and they also strive for this blessing, and Frequently, with that light, they can also become very evil and do evil things. There you go. That's why they're hated. That's why they're so hated. The modern nation state of Israel has no unique role in the kingdom of God. The modern nation state of Israel has no unique role in the kingdom of God, other than as a relatively similar worldview. Here you have a nation that ascribes to the Old Testament, so they've got they're monotheists. They got the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's some overlap there. We can, you know, there's an overlap in worldview there, um, and they, that means they're prime candidates for conversion. Right? There's a great opportunity for a mission field there, and there is then likewise a prime opportunity for gospel ministry to the whole Middle East. Right? Th those would be things we say that's yeah, strategic for the kingdom. That's strategic for the gospel. But the nation state itself has no unique role in the kingdom of God. Otherwise. Christians should apply the same biblical principles of justice and prudence that we apply to France and Germany and England that we would apply to the modern nation-state of Israel. So what does all this mean for us? A couple things. In both of these episodes, the envy of the Jews stirs up trouble and controversy, and the gospel goes forth, and many believe. This is God's way. God intends for his blessing to come upon his people in such a way that it stirs up controversy. It provokes. It either provokes to anger or it provokes to conversion. But it provokes. Notice that this includes even stirring up otherwise noble and devout leaders. That's in verse 50 again. You have these noble and devout women and they get carried along with the Jewish plots. This should give us Compassion for folks who get stirred up by baseless accusations and attacks. All, not all our enemies understand what's driving them. Not all our opponents um, are evil through and through. Some of them get stirred up. Some otherwise good people 
get carried along by something they should not have been carried along by. Remember, God has been patient with us. Have you always gotten everything right? No. Right? Did you ever hear something about someone and think, man, I thought they were good. And then six months later, it turns out they were good. It was, it, was, it, was a, it was a slander. It was gossip. It wasn't even true. Has that ever happened? Yes. Be patient. Patiently bear with weaknesses and misunderstandings, even from those we think really ought to know better. Maybe, think, maybe it's your folks. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's a relative or a coworker that you should know better. You should know better. Well, some, here we have an, an instance, a story in which some otherwise noble people are carried along with persecuting the church. Right? Be patient. Be patient. Be kind. Recognize that God is at work. Now, the word here for envy is sometimes translated zeal. It's actually the same word in Greek, and it sounds like the word zeal um, uh, it, uh, straight from the Greek. And zeal can be good or bad. Zeal can be good or bad. It was zeal that filled Jesus when he cleansed the temple. John 2, verse 17. It says, zeal ate him up. And so he, he, clean, he cleansed the house of God. He cleansed the temple. Paul says that he labored for the Corinthians with a godly zeal or jealousy. 2 Corinthians 11, 2. He labored over the Corinthians zealously with a godly jealousy, wanting their good, wanting their blessing. Christians are exhorted to be zealous for the gifts of the Spirit, that's 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. They're to be zealous for repentance. We're to be zealous for good works. Galatians 4, Titus 2. Right? Those, that's the same word. You're to desire, be hungry for good works, repentance, um, uh, um, the gifts of the Spirit. But zeal has a way of becoming intensely self-righteous right? while claiming a moral high ground. Remember, Paul's zeal led him to persecute the church. Philippians 3.6, Paul says, I was filled with zeal, and I was persecuting the church. Right? He thought he was doing right. And the more you think you're right, the more you're, you start, you start wing, being willing to justify things you shouldn't. But this is so important. That's so wrong. This is so right. And then you begin saying, cutting corners. And so zeal and envy are often also accompanied by strife and wrath and violence. So... How can we know the difference between ungodly zeal and godly zeal? How can you know the difference between ungodly zeal and godly zeal? Well, how do you respond to the blessing of God on others? How do you respond when your coworker gets the promotion? How do you respond when a fellow businessman's business is growing really fast? How do you respond when one of your friends gets married and you really wanted to be married? One of your friends is having a child and you really want to have a child. One of your friends gets a new house and you're still in that stinky apartment. How do you respond? How do you respond to the success and the excellence and the material blessings of others? Is there something immediately that wells up inside you that's critical? I don't think they really appreciate that. Do you resent it? God, why can't I have that? 
Or does it drive you to seek excellence too? Do you, you can, on the one hand, you can think of it as a zero-sum game. If they get it, then I can't. If they've got that blessing, I can't. And so you resent it, you hate it. Oh, they got it instead of me. They won, I lost. Or you can think to yourself, I serve the God who gives those kinds of blessings. You see that? You can, you can say to yourself, you, you can be provoked, but provoked to hunger and zeal and say, I want excellence like that. I want blessing like that. I serve the God who's got more of that. He never runs out. The God who gives that to my coworker, he could give that to me. If he gives it to that business, he can give it to my business. If he gives it to that marriage, he can give it to my marriage. If he gives it to that family, he can give it to my family. Do you see that? Which way are you provoked? At the blessings of God. Are you provoked to want to grab it or resentment or anger or bitterness? Or are you provoked to want to do better? Provoked to excellence. I read a book a number of years ago. It was a biography of uh, Mozart. Mozart is this guy who wrote symphonies when he was 12. That musicians, that, 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 that orchestras are still performing to this day. It's, it's just mind-boggling. And, and this, um, this biography is by a guy named Paul Johnson. And he wrote it in such a way that as I was reading it, um, you know, I never once thought to myself, you know what, maybe I really should get back to the guitar. <laughs> Don't worry, I never thought that. Uh, as, as, as many of you know, my family especially, you know, my, I, what I play is the radio. And, um, and what I don't have in skill and understanding of music, I make up for with enthusiasm and volume. In fact, um, oftentimes my, my kids rib me because, you know, we'll like record a song, or, you know, maybe happy birthday or something like that. And, and then usually it's my voice like booming over and they're like, don't do that, dad. It's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> it just sounds weird too. Um, but as I'm reading this about Mozart com composing symphonies at 12, you know what, what came over me? I had no interest in being a musician. No, I mean, other than just sort of general appreciation. No, you know what came over me was a desire to do what I do with the greatest excellence possible. I thought to myself, we serve a God who invented a guy named Mozart who composed symphonies at 12. And I know that God. He gives good things. It, it, it just welled up in me. And I wasn't even really thinking about all these dynamics, but it was just, and I think it was part of the way that Paul Johnson wrote the biography. It was just like, just, it was glorifying. He wasn't backing away from the excellence, but the way that he talked about the excellence made me want to be excellent. I didn't want to take anything away from Mozart. Right? Praise God. But he does this. He makes this kind of blessing. Right? He makes this kind of blessing. God's blessing is intended to create competing cycles of either imitative envy or imitative excellence. This is God's plan. He wants to pour out his extravagant blessing on people, and it provokes you. It either provokes you to ungodly envy and angst, or it provokes you to godly ambition and zeal. I know the God who blesses like that. God, I want some too. That's, that's what it does. And that's what it's intended to do. 
Paul preached the gospel to provoke the emulation of the Jews, he says in Romans eleven fourteen, 14. He says, I'm preaching the gospel like this because I want the Jews to be provoked to believe. Godly zeal seeks to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, verse 10. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. It's not competing in the sense of a zero-sum game. If, if you do, you know, if you practice hospitality really well that someone else can't, no. It's meant to provoke you to say, I want to learn that. I want to grow that. I want to, I want to be blessed in my business. I want to be blessed in my family. I want to be blessed in my home in a way that provokes others to do the same. Our goal should be such excellence in our work, such honesty, and such blessing on our homes and businesses and nations that the world sees our good works and glorifies our Father in heaven, especially unbelieving Jews. That's our goal. We want to walk before God in such honesty, such humility, that God's blessing is upon us and it provokes the world to want it. How do you, how do you have that? And the answer is, it's all his grace. And guess what? There's way more of it. it isn't even, we haven't even started tapping into it. We're not going to run out. Come, come join us. Come get some. There's here, there's some here for you too. And we need to be fully prepared that as we do this, many will be provoked to wrath. Many will be angry. You think you're so great. You think you have so much stuff. You think you're, you know, you think you're so awesome. No, no, no. No, we're not. It's not us. It's God's grace. It's his mercy. It's his kindness. But the central sign that this is the work of God will be a dominant tone of joy. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. When God's blessing is upon a people, they're full of joy. They're full of joy. That's how you know it's from the Lord. Father, I pray that you would make us hungry for your glory, even more hungry for your blessing in all that we do. And Father, when it comes, when you answer this prayer, prepare us for the provocations that will inevitably come. Hold us tight in your blessing. And so bring all the nations to your son. And Father, we especially pray that the Jews would come into your glorious kingdom through Jesus, who taught us to pray, singing. That is glory. Right? That's the blessing of God. Don't, don't tell me it's just spiritual in some other world, some other dimension. No, no, no. It's that. Right? It's heavy. It's, it rests upon his people. That's the blessing that God intends to give us in his son, Jesus Christ. It's, it's not health and wealth. It's not automatic, but it is real. It is true. It is good. And it's meant to provoke. It's meant to provoke the nations to come. Come and see. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Before I give the benediction, Ty will shoot me if I don't remember to say this. Um, we're, do, we're going right into the uh, uh, fellowship um, uh, meal. We're having a potluck, Reformation potluck party. And um, if... Uh, you were not planning on it or didn't know about it, um, I want you to know that you're warmly invited. The church has provided brats and beer and root beer, and, um, and there's plenty of sides. Um, so um, we're going to transform this worship hall into the feasting hall momentarily. Um, so you're warmly invited. And then the instructions are, is um, we do want to do it quickly. And so as you're able, please grab your purses and things and cups and whatever. And um, you can head kind of back into the fellowship hall directly behind. And then, uh, led by Ty and some of the deacons, we're going to be stacking up all the chairs. There's going to be uh, carts for the Contus Christi to be stacked up. They're under the chairs. We've got to pull them out to stack them. And then we'll be pulling out chairs and tables. So uh, if a few gents want to join in on the fun, we'd be glad for many hands. 
Um, now receive with believing hearts and open hands the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and so present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever. And amen.